Welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. I'm your reader, Anne Coke Gare, and here is our first story. Unity Point staff, parents celebrate Miracle Baby. Gwendolyn Yeo of Dubuque is not expecting to, not expected to experience any lasting effects after going 18 minutes without a heartbeat. By Elizabeth Kelsey, uh, elizabeth.kelsey at themedia.com. Gwendolyn Yeo opened her eyes and the staff standing around her Wednesday morning at Unity Point Health Finley Hospital's family birthing suites in Dubuque cooed and smiled. Her mother, Tracy Yeo, looked down at the nearly three-week-old infant in her arms, dressed in a pink onesie and matching bow. Quote, these are all very important people, Gwen, end quote, she told her daughter. Quote, they're why you're still here, end quote. The room was full of nurses, doctors, nurse practitioners, and more from multiple Finley departments, all of whom had cared for Gwendolyn during her first minutes of life earlier this month when she was without a heartbeat for 18 minutes until they were able to revive her. After also receiving care in Iowa City, Gwendolyn returned home last week and is not expected to experience any lasting effects, leading her parents and hospital staff to refer to her as, quote, miracle baby. Quote, it's amazing to see Gwen here. Such a healthy little girl, said Dr. Kara Lepeller, an obstetrician gynecologist with Dubuque Obstetrics obstetrics and gynecology. Quote, I've been worried about them since they left the hospital, so it's very cool to see them back here now, end quote. Code pink. Tracy of Dubuque had a completely normal pregnancy until the morning of January 12th, just one week before her due date, when she awoke with severe pain in her lower abdomen. She wasn't overly concerned at first, but her sister-in-law convinced her to go to the hospital. When Tracy arrived, Lapelaire recognized the signs of placental abruption. The condition occurs when the placenta detaches from the inner wall of the uterus before delivery, which can deprive a baby of oxygen and nutrients. Most, quote, most placental abruptions are mild, but there are definitely severe ones that can cause major emergencies. Tracy was told to prepare for an emergency cesarean section. She called her husband, William Yeo, who had just gotten home from working third shift at Dubuque Police Department, and he made his way to the hospital. What they told, quote, what they told me when I got her was, when she's having a contraction, we can't find a heartbeat. That's causing red flags, so we're going to deliver the baby now, end quote, William said. When Gwendolyn was delivered, she was not breathing and had no heartbeat. The only thing I heard was that she was not crying, and that was obviously a bad thing, Tracy said. Quote, then we heard code pink, and a million people were coming into the room. Jenny Scott, nurse manager of Family Birthing Suites, said code pink denotes a child or infant in a cardiac arrest who requires resuscitation. 
Staff immediately began chest compressions on Gwendolyn, who was officially, quote, coded for 18 minutes. Gwendolyn was able to resuscitate, was able to be resuscitated, and staff prepared to transfer her to University of Iowa hospitals and clinics in Iowa City. Fog prevented them from transporting her via helicopter, but staff from Unity Point Health, St. Luke's Hospital, and Cedar Rapids traveled to Dubuque to pick up Gwendolyn and take her to Iowa City. I remember thinking, I'm not sure if she's ever going to see her baby after this, Scott said. A lot of good things. Tracy remained in the hospital at Dubuque for three days before she could travel to see Gwendolyn. While Tracy recovered, William stayed with their daughter in Iowa City, where he said the confidence exhibited by Gwendolyn's care team was convinced, convinced him they were in good hands. When the doctor was calm, when the doctor was confident and knew what he needed to do was really reassuring for me, he said. Tracy said the doctor's biggest concern for Gwendolyn was the possibility of brain injury from lack of oxygen or blood flow at the time of birth. For three days, doctors used a cooling blanket to intentionally lower Gwendolyn's body temperature to prevent any more brain damage. Slowly, she was warmed to natural body temperatures, and after several days, her brain scans came back almost completely clear of any spots of concern. Although Gwendolyn will be closely monitored for her first few years of life, her care team told her parents she, quote, has no significant issues neurologically or bodily, end quote, and is unlikely to have any negative lasting effects, Tracy said. Quote, if you've ever, if you would have told me when you left Finley that night that she would be at home in your house in two weeks and perfect, I would have said, oh, I pray to God that's true, end quote, said Lee Stower, a registered nurse and member of the hospital's lactation team who helped resuscitate Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn was in the hospital for a total of 12 days, returning home January 24th on her older brother Zachary's second birthday. I, quote, I was so nervous that she wasn't going to be able to grow up to be like her brother, so the fact that she's going to run around and jump and talk. We owe you guys so much, end quote. Tracy said to Finley, the Finley staff later adding, a lot of good things happened down in Iowa City, but none of those good things could have happened had she not gotten the care that she had got here at Finley before she left. Gwendolyn slept peacefully Wednesday as she was passed from person to person, every staff member wanting a turn to hold the newborn. She looks perfect said nurse practitioner Ryla Anderson. Tracy smiled. She is. And there is a a picture of the baby being passed around at the hospital, Unity Point Health. Um, Registered nurse Lisa Myers is holding Gwendolyn Yeo, the daughter of Tracy and William. The baby was born at the hospital January 12th, but experienced significant difficulty upon her birth including no heartbeat for 18 minutes. She made a visit to the hospital to meet the staff that helped her saved her life. On the next article, Foundation Marks 20 Years of Assisting Area Nonprofits. Local officials laud the accomplishments of Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque by John Cruz. 
When it was founded in 2003, Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque was nothing more than a post office box in the Roe Sheck building and an idea to provide residents with a way to give back to their community. Two decades later, that post office box has expanded to a multi-floor office, 25 employees, and more than $100 million in assets, but its founding idea remains intact. Our mission to inspire giving and strengthen communities, said President and CEO Nancy Van Milligan, who has led the organization since 2003. We have had this great pleasure of being able to work with donors and philanthropists and helping make a positive impact. The foundation serves local nonprofits by creating endowment funds for them and individuals wanting to give to charitable causes. Through these endowments, the foundation generates funding to sustain these organizations in perpetuity, uh, along with pooling financial support for what has identified as major issues in the community. Quote, we've really become a con. A connector and help people understand what the needs are in the community, end quote, said Jeff Dana, communications director for the foundation. Quote, if people want to give back to the community but don't know what causes to support, we can help with that, end quote. The foundation has become a major asset for area nonprofits. Caprice Jones, founder and executor, executive director of the nonprofit Foundation of Youth in Dubuque, said the endowments manage, managed by the foundation have propelled many nonprofit organizations in the area to focus less on finances and more on carrying out their missions. Quote, I think they have been a major impact, Jones said. By making us sustainable, they put us in a position to better help the people we serve, end quote. Since its founding, the nonprofit has awarded nearly $70 million in grants and hosts more than 270 nonprofit endowment funds in seven Iowa counties, Alamakee, Clayton, Clinton, Delaware, Dubuque, Jackson, and Jones. Founding board member John, let's see. Founding board member John O'Connor said he and other community leaders started laying the groundwork for the foundation in 2001. At the time, numerous other communities in Iowa already had community foundations, but Dubuque was without one. Quote, they tried to get one started here 10 years earlier, but it never got off the ground, O'Connor said. We put a group of people together to try to kick it off, end quote. With support from local businesses, O'Connor said the Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque's founding board was able to raise $950,000 in seed money. From there, the organization continued to grow through establishing endowments, partnering with other nonprofit organizations, and starting several of its own philanthropic initiatives, such as Every Child Reads, a program to improve early grade level literacy in the area. Van Milligan said the foundation has had many successes since it has launched, but she is particularly proud of its work to help bring to life an an another notable Dubuque nonprofit organization, Crescent Community Health Center. 
In 2005, the foundation partnered with Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce to establish Envision 2010, a community vision process that established projects to address critical needs in the community. One of those projects was the creation of a new community health center. Through a $1.3 million donation from the Schmidt family, Van Milligan said, the foundation established an endowment to provide continued funding to the health center, while additional funding from both the state and federal government allowed for the facility to be completed. In 2006, Crescent opened and has continued to provide medical services to low-income residents for more than 15 years. Quote, I'm very proud that we are able to be that catalyst, end quote, Van Milligan said. Crescent Community Health Center is such an important asset to our community to this day, end quote. She said the foundation has continued to grow dramatically, and she only expects the trend to continue. We have had this great pleasure of being able to work with donors and philanthropists, she said. Quote, we're looking forward to continuing to meet the challenges and opportunities that emerge in our area, end quote. Former Dubuqueers at NASA reacted to Columbia disaster 20 years ago. Space Shuttle Columbia was destroyed during re-entry 20 years ago this week. The disaster on February 1st, 2003 killed seven, the seven-person crew, Commander Rick Husband, Pilot William McCool, Mission Specialist Michael Anderson, David Brown, Kalpana Chawla, and Laurel Clark, and Payload Specialist Elan Rahman. The shuttle broke apart over Texas, just 16 minutes away from its landing area in Florida. The Telegraph Herald reached out to NASA and affiliated employers, employees with tri-state area ties in the wake of the disaster. Here's how the TH reported on their reactions in its February 2, 2003 edition. Ex-Dubuqueers say NASA family reeling. The death of, the death of seven Astronauts aboard the Columbia Space Shuttle Saturday is a loss felt by the entire NASA family, according to three former Dubuque residents who work for the space program. When something like this happens, part of our family has been lost, and it's a saddening moment, said Bob Zettner Jr., whose company is contracted to do engineering and technology development for NASA. Zettner, a 1976 graduate of Wallert High School, said he was glued to the television Saturday after hearing that the Columbia disintegrated over Texas, just minutes from landing in Florida. This is a very tight-knit community, and for, for, for those of us who that work in the space community, it's much more than a job, Zettner said. Mark Fearing, a NASA flight director and Wallert graduate, said he felt sympathy and shock when he heard the news. I'm mostly thinking about the families, their children, and the fact they are people just like you and me, Fearing said. Houston was fairly quiet Saturday afternoon, which Fearing guessed was because people were watching the news. Quote, when something like this happens, it not only touches the nation, but our community, because it's such an integral part of our lives, end quote, said Terry Kane, whose husband, Leroy Kane, is a former Dubuque resident and NASA flight director. 
Leroy was involved in the Columbia mission and was in lockdown at the Johnson Space Center for most of Saturday following the explosion, Terry said. NASA officials have to make sure of all the recorded data is secure, she said. When her husband phoned her Saturday afternoon, Terry said he could only talk for a few minutes but was pretty broken up. Although Faring was not involved with the Columbia mission, he said he did have the chance several years ago to work with Rick Husband, one of the astronauts that died in the explosion. Quote, he was one of those people that everyone liked immediately, Faring said. He guessed that the Columbia ground crew was surprised by the phase at which the shuttle experienced trouble, Faring said. He doesn't remember any incidents that have occurred in a shuttle's reentry. However, he said, no mission is without risk. Zettner agreed. In any endeavor where the, there is great gain, there is great risk, he said. Police, next article, Dubuque police seeking to identify man seen interfacing with two missing teens. Dubuque police seek the public's help in identifying a man recently seen, quote, interacting with, end quote, two missing teens. Quote, this person is not suspected of criminal activity, but was recently observed interacting with Emily Dudney and Liliana Carey, both of whom are listed as missing from Hillcrest Family Services of Dubuque says a press release from police, which included a photo of a man in a green coat or sweatshirt. Emily, 5 feet 4 inches tall and weighs about 125 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes, police said the 14-year-old was last seen wearing a blue jacket, brown shirt, blue jeans, and black Crocs brand shoes. Liliana, 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighs about 160 pounds with light brown slash blonde hair and brown eyes. The 15-year-old was last wearing, seen wearing a gray hooded sweatshirt and jeans. Lieutenant Brennan Welsh told the Telegraph Herald that because the investigation was ongoing, he could not share many details. However, he said the Hillcrest listed the two girls as runaways on January 25th. Since then, the investigators have been working with families and checking city traffic cameras, he said. They did locate these girls on traffic cameras walking around downtown Dubuque and noticed that they interacted with with the male individual. He emphasized that the individual is not a suspect in the case. Officers hope he might be able to provide information on on the conversation he had with the girls that could offer clues as to their whereabouts. We have very few leads at this point, so we're hoping that we can, he can point us in the right direction and mention anything that can help shed some light on the situation, Welch said. Anyone who can help identify the man or has information on the girls should contact Investigator Clark Edgedorf at 563-589-4400. Or C E D E rather C E G D O R F at City of Dubuque dot org. On to a, the opinions section. U.S. Special Forces Strike in Africa by Arthur C Y R. 
for the Telegraph Herald. Bailal al-Sudani is not exactly a household name, which is all the more reason to highlight the fact that this dangerous terrorist, le- terrorist leader has been removed. On January 26th, U.S. military troops killed 11 members of the Islamic State, including him. Members of this violent fundamentalist movement were engaged in a mountainous cave complex in Somalia. Sudani was a powerful, effective leader involved in broad coordination of military and terrorist operations. Islamic State has been formally classified as a terrorist organization by the United Nations. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin announced the special military operation. His statement noted Bilal al-Sudani was responsible for fostering the growing presence of ISIS in Africa and for funding the group's operations worldwide, including in Afghanistan. Secretary Austin emphasized the crucial importance of intelligence professionals in making the successful operation possible. Earlier, on January 20th, U.S. Africa Command, at the request of the Somali government, undertook a successful joint military operation. This attack took place northwest of Mogadishu near an area named Galkad. Somali National Army troops were engaged in heavy combat there with terror with the terrorist movement of Al-Shabaab based in Somalia. Previously, a decade ago, Sudani was involved in recruiting and training members of the Al-Shabaab. This organization is directly associated with Al-Qaeda, which carried out the 9-11 mass murder attacks in the United States in 2001. For decades, Somalia has been generally regarded as a failed state, with the government unable to provide even elementary services or security. In 1993, a U.S. state's military mission to Somalia ended in frustration after killing the killing of 18 U.S. Army Rangers. The book and film Black Hawk Down describes this. Pirates op- operating off the coast of Somalia are a continuing vexing challenge. Al-Shabaab was formed around December 2006 from the shifting formations of extreme, essentially truly insane terrorist groups. Included were extreme elements of the formally stabilizing Islamic Courts Union. American terrorist Omar Hamami was involved unit killing in a power struggle. Historically, Americans have been absent-minded about Africa. Past presidents generally focused on other parts of the world with notable exceptions. Senator John F. Kennedy was chairman of the African Affairs Subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, extremely attentive to the task, and carried concern about Africa into the Oval Office. President Jimmy Carter in office and since has steadfastly worked with Africa. The Carter Center has devoted sustained emphasis to public health and related problems of that continent. One dramatic result is the virtual eradication of Guinea worm, a devastating, agonizing disease. Carter effectively leveraged his center's efforts into World Bank efforts targeting the disease. 
Former President Bill Clinton achieved rock star status in Africa, a popular stop in his travels on behalf of the Clinton Foundation. Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama devoted at least periodically attention to, to the continent while in office. Reflecting the changing times, President John F. Kennedy deserves credit for establishing the Peace Corps, a concept promoted by former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and Senator Senator Hubert Humphrey, Democrat, Minnesota. The Peace Corps is remarkably durable today, involving selfless volunteers ranging widely in age. Related, enormous growth in private philanthropy means there are unprecedented opportunities to raise living standards across Africa. Basic safety and security, however, remains a challenge. Terrorists generate continuing death, destruction, and headlines, but have yet to demonstrate appeal to the average person in Africa or elsewhere on the globe. The world today rejects extremism. Arthur Sear is an author of After the Cold War, American Foreign Policy, Europe and Asia. Contact ACYR at Carthage.edu. Now um, on to the obituaries. Dolores E. Reifsteck of Stockton, Illinois. Dolores Eileen Reifsteck, formerly of Hanover, spent her last day surrounded by her five favorite people and her two favorite dogs before passing peacefully away on January 29, 2023. She went by many names over her nearly 100 years of life. Cotton, Lo, Ma, Grandma, and her favorite, Gigi. She, is lo- she loved travel adventures, spending time taking talking to friends and family and learning about their lives and playing with dogs of any kind. She loved eating food, especially dessert, and especially more than one. She enjoyed reading, praying the rosary, puzzles, and card games up until the last couple of years when advanced dementia stole her from us. Even then, she loved winning stuffed animals at bingo and lining them up on her windowsill. Her family will always remember her as a sweet, funny, optimistic, and positive person who was always grateful for time with them and feel fortunate to have had her with us for so long. She was born April 23, 1923, to Gustave and Sarah Jane Starkey Schmidt and quituated high school at age 14 to go to work. When she was 20, she said, I wanted to do something different. My sister Henrietta went. I figured, what the heck? I might as well go too. From Fort Des Moines, Iowa, she enlisted in the United States Army to be a part of the war effort in Europe during World War II. She was deployed to England, France, and Germany, where she worked as a teletype and printing press operator. Her off time was spent traveling and meeting new friends with whom she had had adventures, including roller skating at the club. After the war, she returned home, where she married Edward Otto Reifsteck of Hanover, Illinois. The couple had two children, Ed, Butch, and Judy, were many and many dogs. They had many happy years spent with their many sisters, brothers, cousins, nephews, and nieces. She was preceded in death by her parents and her husband, her daughter Judith Reifsteck of East Dubuque, and her grandson Benjamin Edward Reifsteck of of Lena. 
She's survived by her son and daughter-in-law, Edward and Margaret Reifsteck of, of Lena. Her granddaughter, Dr. Mary Frances Barthel, Ryan Pabisic of Quincy, Illinois, and two great-granddaughters, Allison Maria Barthel and Lily Catherine Barthel, both of Quincy, Illinois. A celebration of her long and full life will be held on Friday, February 3rd, 2023 at St. John's, the the Evangelist Catholic Church in Hanover, Illinois. A Catholic funeral mass will be held at 10 a.m. with a visitation to be held from 9.30 a.m. until until the time of the service. Burial will take place at Evergreen Cemetery in Hanover, Illinois with military honors to take place. Fort Joachim B. Tatiana will be officiating. A memorial has been established in her memory. Condolences may be sent to the family at www.leamonfh.com. Lisa A. Wood of Webster City, Iowa. Lisa Wood, 53, of Webster City, passed away peacefully, surrounded by her family, on Monday, January 30th, 2023. Visitation will be from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Friday, February 3rd, 2023, at Foster Funeral and Cremation Center. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 4th, 2023, at the funeral home. Burial will be held at... Calvary Cemetery at a later time. Lisa Ann Link, daughter of Leo and Jean Benzer Link, was born December 12, 1969 in Dubuque. She graduated from Dubuque Wallert High School in 1988 and received her associate's degree from University of Phoenix. On September 23, 2002, Lisa was united in marriage to James A. Wood in Oak Go Rios, Jamaica. To this union, the two children were born, Colton and Madeline. The couple later divorced. Lisa worked for 26 years for Hoya in customer support. She's survived by her children, Colton James Wood and Madeline Ann Wood, both of Webster City. Her significant other, Darren Peck of Webster City, mother, Jean Muir of Ankeny, stepmother Pat Link of Ankeny, sisters Nancy, Mike, Wagner of Oregon, Wisconsin, Linda Scott, Glob of Ankeny, Tina, Ken Anderson, Link of Ankeny, and many nieces and nephews, extended family and friends. Lisa was preceded in death by her father, Leo Link, stepfather, Ted Muir, brother, Jeff Link, her beloved fur baby, Gizzy, grandparents, Bernice and Leo Link Sr., and Herman and Grace Ginter. She was a member of St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church. Lisa loved to spend time with her kids and family. She enjoyed boating, camping, bowling, and playing darts. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be left to James Wood in Lisa's honor to establish a scholarship for her children. Allie Schiffer, 
Marcella L. Sally Schiffer, 98, of Key West, formerly of Lamont, passed away on January 31, 2023, at Bethany Home in Dubuque. Mass of Christian burial will be at 11 o'clock a.m. on Friday, February 3, 2023, at St. Joseph Catholic Church, Key West, with Monsignor Thomas Toll officiating. Visitation will be from 9 to 11 a.m. on Friday, February 3rd at the church. Burial will follow at Holy Rosary Cemetery in Lamont. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Sally was born on June 18, 1924 in Lamont, daughter of Nicholas and Cecilia Schilling Pitts. She was united in marriage to Elmer Schiff. Schiffer on October 5th, 1949 at Holy Rosary Catholic Church in Lamont. He preceded her death on April 7th, 2018. She was a hardworking farm wife alongside Elmer. She milked cows, tended her chickens, and tended her three gardens. From her gardens, she did a lot of canning, gathered bushels of potatoes, and topped it off with her beautiful flowers around the edges. She was also an amazing cook and baker, and people raved about her fresh bread and pies. She also enjoyed going dancing with Elmer and a good game of euchre. She was an avid Chicago Cubs and Hawkeye fan and was a member of St. Joseph Key West Parish and Catholic Daughters of America. Sally is survived by her three children, Gary, Lisa, Schiffer of Lamont, Don, Jeannie Schiffer of Dubuque, and Sherry, Gary Witter of Marion, Iowa, a daughter-in-law, Angel Schiffer of Maquoketa, 16 grandchildren, Michael, Ryan, Chad, Brian, Nick, Wyatt, Levi, Kyle, Jenny, Sarah, Shelby, Thomas, Andrew, Brian, Amy, and Tammy, many great, many great grandchildren, one great great grandchild, two sisters in law, Marie Wheeland and Leona Schiffer, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents, her husband Elmer, her son Jim, and siblings Joseph, Lyle Pitts, William Pitts, Jim, Mary Margaret, Pitts, Marge, George, Schlegel, and Mary Frank Makovic. The family would like to thank the nurses and staff of Bethany Home in Dubuque and Hospice of Dubuque for their love, care, and kindness. Helena Dearborn of Newton, Iowa. Helena, quote, Ellie Dearborn, 24, of Newton, Iowa, formerly of Davenport, passed away unexpectedly on Saturday, January 28, 2023, at her home. Funeral services will be held on Saturday, February 4th at 2023 at St. Mark's Lutheran Church, Davenport, Iowa. Visitation will be on Friday, February 3rd, 2023 from 4 to 8 p.m. at Weirtz Funeral Home. Burial will be at Davenport Memorial Park Cemetery following the service. Memorials in Ellie's name may be made to St. Mark's Lutheran Church or to an opiate, opiate awareness foundation of your choice. Ellie was born on February 28, 1998 in Davenport, Iowa. She was a 2016 graduate of Davenport West High School. Ellie was currently employed by the Newton Community School District. 
She was previously employed by the Dubuque Community School District as a paraeducator at the senior high school and as a waitress at Catfish Charlie's. While living in Davenport, she worked with the DCSD as a paraeducator. Hyvie on Locust Street and at Harris Pizza. Allie enjoys spending time with her boyfriend, Antoine Slaughter of Newton, and his sons, Isaiah, Moses, Cash, and his nephew, Darian. She could be found on the sidelines cheering them on at their sporting events. She and her father were avid Bulls and Dolphin fans. Growing up, Ellie loved to dance, and she attended DanceWorks for 12 years. She also loved to play baseball and basketball. Ellie loved her fur baby, Winnie, a Shih Tzu. Ellie loved spending time with her best friends and partners in crime, Claudia and Megan, who were inseparable for most of their lives. Ellie's fondest memories were traveling to Florida and Mexico and Tennessee where her, with her friends and family. She also loved to shop and and search for the best deals. Her nieces, Amelia and June, and nephew Liam held a special place in her heart, and she was excited about the upcoming birth of her nephew. Those left to honor her memory are her mother, Darcy David Mosier Fondell of Davenport, Iowa, father, Stephen Dearborn of Newton, Iowa, brothers, Blake Venetia Mosier, Alex, Holly Dearborn and Stephen Ebony Dearborn, all of Davenport, Iowa. Nieces Amelia and June, nephew Liam and another nephew due to due next month, along with her best friends Megan D. Rymacher and Claudia Hesselberg. She was preceded in death by her grandmother Laura Lee Mosier and three aunts Julie Thonson Temple. Stephanie Mosier Bell and Carol Fondell. Online condolences may be left to the family by visiting her obituary at www.weertsfh.com. Anita Gudenhoff, Cascade, Iowa. Anita R. Gudenhoff, 80, of Cascade, died on Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. Visitation will be held from 3 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 6th at Rife Funeral Home in Cascade. Services will take place at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, February 7th at St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade. Burial will be in Calvary Cemetery in Cascade. Nancy K. Steffen. Nancy K. Steffen, 65 of Dubuque, died on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. Visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday 4th at Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road, where services will follow. Marcus L. Richter of Platteville, Wisconsin. Marcus Leroy Richter, 90, of Platteville, Wisconsin, passed away on Sunday, January 22, 2023. Marcus was born on September 27, 1932, in Lancaster, Wisconsin, to Frank and Laura Schuchart Richter. He was married to Donna Collins for 62 years before he went to heaven in 2015. Before she went to heaven in 2015. 
Marcus drove a school bus, was a Cub Scout leader, and worked for Dubuque Packing Company for 18 years before moving to Arizona, where he worked for Southwest Pet Products and became an assistant pastor at a local church. After being in Arizona for 30 years, he and his wife moved back to Wisconsin. Marcus is survived by his eight children, Marie, Mike, Wolf, Marcus, Deb, Richter, Richard, Jane Richter, Joan Heister, Terry, Jill Richter, Diane, David Martinez, Gary, Tina Richter, and Jim, Bev Richter, brother-in-law Dennis Don Collins, and 19 grandchildren and 29 great-grandchildren. In addition to his parents and loving wife, Donna Marcus was preceded in death by three sisters, Kathleen Jim Griffiths, Helen Fred Kohler, and Bernadine Jack Shade, brother Francis Bud Richter, and grandson Eric Richter. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. The family would like to extend a thank you to everyone at Edinburgh for the eight years Marcus had been a resident. He had enjoyed being a jokester to residents and staff. Funeral services. Grace A. Klaus, Cascade, Iowa. Visitation 9 to 10.15 a.m. Today at St. Martin's Catholic Church. Cascades service. 10.30 a.m. today at the church. Sandra D. Colson, Cuba City, Wisconsin. Visitation 9.30 to 11, Saturday, February 4th. Howden's Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services, Cuba City Service, 11 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Mary Ann Digman, Hopkington, Iowa. Visitation 3 to 7 p.m. today and from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 3rd at St. Luke Catholic Church. A massive Christian burial, 10.30 a.m., Friday at the church. Vince Ehrlich, Dubuque. Visitation, 3 to 7 p.m. today. Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road. Massive Christian burial, 10.30 a.m., Friday, February 3rd, Holy Ghost Catholic Church. Michael Figueroa. Galena, Illinois, visitation 10 to 11, Friday, February 3rd, Furlong Funeral Chapel, Galena, service, 11 a.m., Friday at the funeral home. William A. Frederick, Dubuque, visitation 9 to 10.30 a.m., Friday, February 3rd, of the Resurrection Church of the Resurrection, service 10.30 a.m., Friday at the church. Laura Joyce, Bloomington, Wisconsin, visitation 4 to 7 p.m., Friday, February 3rd, and 9.30 a.m., 9 to 10.30 a.m., Saturday, February 4th, St. Mary's Catholic Church, Bloomington, Mass. of Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Saturday at the church. Michael Klein, Verona, Wisconsin, visitation 10.30 to 11 this Saturday, February 11th at St. Anthony Catholic Church, service 11 a.m., February 11th at the church. Loretta J. Lucy, East Dubuque, Illinois, visitation 9.30 to 10.45 a.m., Saturday, February 4th at St. Mary's Catholic Church, East Dubuque, Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m., Saturday at the church. 
and Wayne O'Brien, Eastman, Wisconsin. Celebration of Life, 4 to 7, with a rosary service at 3.30 p.m. Saturday, February 4th. Thornburg Grau Funeral Home, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Ann Cokegear, and if you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. Ukraine hails French gift of radar. Limor France. Ukraine's defense minister said Wednesday that Ukrainian lives will be saved by a sophisticated air defense radar that France is supplying and which is powered full enough to spot incoming missiles and exploding drones in the skies over all of Ukraine's capital and its surrounding region. The minister, Oleg Rezintkanov, was so enthusiastic about what he called Ukraine's new electric eyes that he quickly coined a nickname for the Groundmaster 200 radar, the Grand Master, speaking through an interpreter at Hanover at a handover ceremony for the radar with his French counterpart, Reznikov described the French-made GM-200 as a very effective improvement for Ukraine's network of about 300 different types of air defense radars. Thals, the manufacturer, says the radar detects and tracks rockets, artillery and mortar shells, missiles, aircrafts, drones, and other threats. Because of your support, Ukrainian lives will be saved, the minister said at the ceremony in Lemur, where Thales makes the equipment. This radar will be the cherry on the cake, he added. That's why we will, it will be called the Grand Master. The French defense minister, Sebastien Le Cornu, said the GM-200's range of 155 miles would enable it to watch the skies over Kiev and the Ukrainian capital's surrounding region, although it wasn't clear whether that's where Ukrainian forces intend to deploy it. The radar is transportable on a truck. Thales says it can be deployed in 15 minutes and be moved to another location in 10 minutes, making it harder a harder target to hit. The minister was gifted a small model of the radar at the ceremony and brandished it with a big grin above his head. Let's see sports in brief. Hall of Fame NFL executive Bobby Beathard dies at 86. Bobby Beathard, the architect of four Super Bowl winning teams with two different organizations during his lengthy tenure in football, has died. He was 86. A spokesperson for the Washington Commanders said Beathard's family told the team he died Monday at his home in Franklin, Tennessee, less than a week after his 86th birthday. A cause of death was not immediately available. Beathard was a director of player personnel for two of the NFL championships by by Miami in the 1970s and served as general manager for two more by Washington in the 80s. He also scouted for Kansas City when he was the Chiefs 
when the Chiefs won the American Football League title and made Super Bowl one following the 1996 season and was GM with San Diego when the Chargers got there in the mid-90s. Part of the seven teams that made the Super Bowl during his lengthy front office career, Bethard was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2018. Washington added him to the organization's Ring of Honor in 2016. Quote, Bobby not only built winning teams throughout his career, but he also built winning cultures that lasted beyond his years with an organization, end quote. Pro Football Hall of Fame President Jim Porter said in a statement, quote, he combined an eye for talent with a specific gift for working with other people. The results speak for themselves. Beathard also scouted for the Atlanta Falcons, but is most known for his roles with Don Shula's Dolphins that won the Super Bowl back-to-back and then hiring coach Joe Gibbs and drafting Daryl Green, Art Monk, and others, including during his time in Washington. In the nation and world, um, day of disruption in UK as hundreds of thousands joined the strike. And this is the Associated Press out of London. Thousands of schools in the UK closed some or all of their classrooms, train services were paralyzed, and delays were expected at airports of the biggest day of the industrial action Britain has seen in more than a decade as unions stepped up pressure on the government Wednesday to provide better pay amid a cost-of-living crisis. The Trades Union Congress, a federation of unions, estimated that up to a half a million workers, including teachers, university staff, civil servants, board Border officials and train drivers went on strike across the country. More walkouts, including by, including by nurses and ambulance workers, are planned for the coming days and weeks. Months of strikes have disrupted the daily routines of Britons as a bitter dispute between unions and the government over pay and working condition drags on. The simultaneous strikes among multiple industries on Wednesday marked an escalation of the union's protest actions. The last time the country saw mass walkouts on this scale was in 2011, when well over one million public sector workers staged a one-day strike in a dispute over pensions. Others on strike Wednesday ranged from museum workers and London bus drivers to Coast Guard personnel and office officers who staff passport booths at airports. The British Museum was closed Wednesday because of the strikes. Union bosses argue that despite some of some pay increases, such as 5% of the government's proposed te- to teachers, the UK's soaring inflation has plunged scores of public sector workers into financial difficulty because their wages have failed to keep pace. Teachers, health workers, and many others say their wages have fallen in real terms over the last decade, and the surge in living costs that began last year exacerbated the problem. The Trades Union, Trades Union Congress, or TUC, said Wednesday that the average public sector worker is, 2000 and, is 203 pounds, or $250 a month, worse off compared with 2010 once inflation is taken into account. Inflation in the UK stands at 10.5%, the highest in 40 years, driven by skyrocketing food and energy costs. While some expected 
Some expect price increases to show this year. Britain's economic outlook remains grim. On Tuesday, the International Monetary Fund Monetary Fund said the country will be the only major economy to contract this year, perform, performing even worse than sanctions hit Russia. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, Ann Coke-Gair. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest, but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. 
Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.